0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. How are, How are you? Okay, good, 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 good. Now at least I realize that you are awake. That's always a helpful thing. Always a helpful thing. Hey, let me share just a couple of things with you real quickly. Uh, this afternoon at, um, at four, excuse me, at 545 today, uh, in this room, we will be having our family meeting. It's a quarterly time when we gather uh, to, to share, our ministry leaders share, our, our people share, uh, what God is doing in us and among us and out of us in the community. And so um, we, we, we do that, and, and then we pray. We spend most of our time praying, uh, asking for, for God's direction, for God's provision, uh, asking for uh, His help. Uh, because he, he has called us to, to serve in this community. And I'd encourage you to, to come out and, and join us for our, our family meeting. Um, next Sunday, is uh, we're going to be hosting our Exploring Church Membership Seminar. And it's about an hour and 45-minute seminar uh, where we try to explain what we understand God has called River Bluff Church to be and do in our community, how we're organized and structured to accomplish the mission that the Lord has given us. And we give folks an opportunity at the end of that to say, I want in. So if you've been hanging out at the river for a while and and thinking, you know, okay, these people—they're—they're they're great people. The pastor is still a little iffy on, but um, we'll—you uh, we, may want to join with us and make River Bluff your your spiritual family. And say, I want in. I want to be a part of this. I want to commit to this. And you'll be able to do that at the end of the the seminar. And it'll take you uh, just a few minutes to meet with a membership coach to kind of walk that out and flesh that out. So uh, I hope you'll maybe come next Sunday afternoon at four. You can sign up on our website, or on your way out today, you can sign up at the welcome center. Uh, there's there's a place to do that. Um, if, if you need child care, please let us know because we want to prepare for that well to make sure all the, the young'uns are, are covered well. Um, this morning, we are going to be in the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you would open them, turn them on, uh, whatever you got to do to get to John chapter 20. Uh, there's something in there today uh, for us, I, I, I believe. And we're going to be starting um, in verse 11. We'll, we'll jump back up to verse 1 later on. But uh, we're going to start in verse 11. And this is Mary Magdalene's first encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And she is the first person that Jesus appeared to in his resurrected body. Look at this with me. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white. And he asked, Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, here's what I am hoping that we see together. That when Jesus is in the presence of the brokenhearted, someone who is distraught and overwhelmed, Jesus provides a path. And there's two two reasons I want us to look at this together. The first of those reasons is so that you and I, as we encounter people in our lives, in the places we live, learn, work, and play that God gives us. God gives us people, our family members, our, our, our friends, who at times will be overwhelmed and overcome by the brokenness in this world and, and may even experience seasons of being brokenhearted, like Mary Magdalene was in what we look at today. Secondly, I want us to look at this and, and see this because I want you to recognize Jesus when he is with the brokenhearted so that when you find yourself in a season like that, you will recognize it's Jesus. You will know it's him at work in your life. You will know it's him working on your behalf when you were beaten down and battered and broken by the cures of this world. Now, one of the things that we need to just go ahead and say and admit together is that uh, people in their brokenness, broken-hearted people, can be fragile. They have to be kind of handled in in great ways of care. They can be emotionally distressed. They can be filled with hopelessness and and despair. And bringing them back into hope is a process. It's not something you can just snap your fingers or they're going to jump right back into. And we see this in Mary's life. She is in sorrow. She's in distress. She's even, I believe, on the verge, if not full-blown in, depression, And Jesus steps into that. And he takes Mary through a simple journey of discovery, quite frankly, and brings her, on the other side of that journey, immense hope. And frankly, there's a journey, that kind of journey, that any of us can take with Jesus. We can take that journey to move from despair when we find ourselves there to hope. And you can walk with another person To do that as well you can just be with them step by step in a journey like this with patience to bring them from despair to hope now mary magdalene we know came to the tomb that morning and she found the stone rolled away and she thought her assumption was somebody has taken the body of jesus they've stolen him but mary was wrong See, there had been a resurrection. And Mary was going to have to discover this, that her assumptions were wrong, that Jesus' body had not been taken. She's going to discover that that she was wrong about this. There's a story that I read that I want to share with you, um, a story that is told to be true, uh, supposedly happened in Sarasota, Florida. um, And it's uh, about an elderly lady who... Uh, suddenly discovered that her assumption about something was wrong. Story goes that she had been shopping, grocery shopping, and she came out of the grocery store with uh, bags of groceries in her arms. And when she got to her car, she saw four men in the car about about to back out. And she dropped her groceries and pulled her gun out of her her pocketbook. And she pointed it at the guy who was in the driver's seat and told them all to get out. And he threw that car in park, and they all jumped out. He grabbed his keys, went with him. And they all took off, scared to death. And so she gathers up her groceries and puts them in the back seat. and moves to the front seat and she's just shaking and jittering and she tries to put her key in and the ignition and it won't go in it won't crank and she doesn't doesn't know what's what's happening and she she looks over and she notices this this football and frisbee and a six pack of beer and she thinks well it must have been theirs they must have left them in their haste to run and she she tries the key again and it won't work and it dawns on her this is not my car And she gets out and she looks and four or five spaces down is her car. So she gets her groceries out and she takes them and she puts them in her car. And she drives her car to the closest police station to tell the police what she has done. And she walks in. And the death sergeant on duty, she starts telling him the story, and he just dies laughing. He, he cannot control himself. He's just laughing so hard. And he points down to the end of the counter, and those four men, just as pale as they can be, still shaken, they're giving their description of this little elderly woman with this great big gun that had carjacked them. And anyway, it was all kind of, you know, taken care of, and uh, the lady discovered she had been wrong. And Mary Magdalene discovered that she had been wrong. Now, just like the police chief and the men that day were very compassionate to this to this elderly woman, Jesus acts that way to people who are blinded by their brokenheartedness. Whether it's you or anyone else, Jesus has a gentleness towards people in their brokenhearted condition. So I want us to look: How does Jesus bring hope to the brokenhearted? There are four things that I, I kind of walk away from this, this story with, this account from the Gospel of John. First of all, when Jesus is present with broken hearted, tears are typical. Tears are typical. It's not, it's not unnatural. It's not, it doesn't throw Jesus off when there, when there are tears present, uh, when people are, are, are just experiencing a broken heart condition. The Bible tells us in verse 11 that Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. Now, that word weeping there is an uncontrollable wailing. It's not just a little bit of sniffing and, you know, a tear here, a tear there. I mean, it's massive, tears, snot, it's nasty. I mean, she is all in wailing. It, it, it's just, she lost it. I mean, this is what's going on here. Now, and I want you to think with me just go back in time just a little bit, maybe to the night before. You know, she, she had witnessed Jesus' body being put in the tomb. She, she witnessed that, the Bible tells us. And so she had Friday night and then all day Saturday and Saturday night. And I just imagine Saturday night for Mary was sleepless. Just, just restless. She had already determined that she was going to go prepare the body the next day. So I, I don't think she got much sleep. I think visions of Jesus' body on the cross or having been taken down, and if you were here for our Monday Thursday service when we talked about kind of the medical condition of Jesus' body, it was horrid. It's worse than any of us could really even imagine. It's worse than, you know, what, what the movies portrayed. And that's what's going on in her head. The gospel writer tells us in Matthew chapter 27 that Mary was there. That she with the other ladies had followed Jesus from, to Jerusalem from Galilee. And that they watched from a distance. And that Mary Magdalene was among them. She was there for the crucifixion. And I don't believe she slept well Saturday night. I think she tossed and turned. But finally, she got up early, the Bible tells us. She, she got up early. Uh, if we go back to John chapter 20 verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. Notice, while it was still dark. The language there that's used actually describes it as the fourth watch of the night, which would have been somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., that Mary comes to the tomb, and the stone had already been rolled away. She gets there, and the stone's already rolled away. Now, Mary had been waiting for Sabbath to be over. She didn't want to break any Sabbath laws by walking too far on the Sabbath, so she wasn't able to go to the tomb before the Sabbath. But now the Sabbath's over. And she has entered into what would be considered 30 days of mourning. In the Jewish tradition and culture of that day, they officially set aside a whole month for mourning the loss of someone that they loved. I mean, it was, it was kind of an official deal. And the, their culture carved that, that out. And so the first seven days were kind of designated as the most intense time. And during those first seven days, there are certain things that most people who were in mourning wouldn't engage in. They wouldn't bathe. They wouldn't anoint themselves with oil in other words they, they didn't put you know products in their hair okay they, they didn't do anything like that they, they 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 didn't wear shoes they would go barefoot they uh they also would oftentimes you know not engage in business or study or anything like that they they would look very disheveled and and they would um, oftentimes literally put on sackcloth and put ashes on their head and, and, and on their face. Sometimes they would, in in moments when they were really wailing and, and their emotions were just coming out, they would tear their clothes to show, to demonstrate publicly what was going on internally. That they were brokenhearted, that their hearts had been torn as a way to further demonstrate the loss that they were going through. They, they practiced in real life time what king solomon wrote about in ecclesiastes chapter 3 and and you you're familiar with this it says in verse 4 that there is a time to weep a time to laugh there is a time to mourn and mary was in this time uh, of mourning and it's very typical Tears in this condition are are, are very typical. So she comes to this first day of the week in verse 21. I mean, chapter 20, verse 1 that we read a moment ago tells us that it was the first day of the week. It was still dark. Mary comes to the tomb. The, The stone has been rolled away. And so this is what she does. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So she's the first one to the tomb. She gets there. The stone's rolled away. It doesn't say that she looks in. So we don't know whether she looked in and saw there was no body or whether she just assumed it, that his body had been stolen. But she runs immediately to go see Peter and to John. And the Bible tells us that the disciples, Peter and John, they immediately take off running for the tomb. And John beats Peter there. And John writes about it in the gospel in his gospel under his name, so that we would all know for all eternity that John was faster than Peter. Isn't that just like a man? You know, to, to even even in the gospel to, to brag about his speed or something like that. You're always competitive. Look at verse 3. It says so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, here's Mary obviously follows we know that in a moment she's not able to keep up with them they get to the tomb and i think by the time they get there or by the time mary gets there they've probably already gone if you go down to uh, john chapter 20 verse 10 it says the disciples went back to to their homes but mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept as she wept she stooped to look in the tomb so mary is back at the tomb now and this time she is looking in. The Bible tells us that she actually looks in. She's weeping. She's she's broken. She's just pouring tears. They're typical, and, and you you know this. Tears in this condition kind of have a language all their own. They just flow freely. They just they just kind of pour out of us. And part of that is because God's design for us is that we could cry. You know. Um, Around the orbits, the sockets of your eyes, there are glands that God put there uh, with tear ducts that allow tears to come to our eyes. Primary purpose is to clean them, to get dust out of them, to keep keep your eyes safe. But what's interesting is neurologically those glands are tied to the emotional center of our brains. So that when we can become extremely filled with joy. But mostly when we become extremely filled with sorrow, they hyperactivate, and, and tears can, can just come, just flow. It's, it's normal, it's typical when you are overwhelmed and brokenhearted for tears to just flow. In fact, doctors tell us, healthcare professionals tell us, it's unhealthy to try to stop that, to try to suppress it. But what do we do when, we're, when we come upon someone who's crying? What do we try to do? you you can stop your crying now it's okay it'll be we try to stop them from crying who is that for us for me you know that's why we try to stop that we we we, for us we don't we don't want to cry we don't want to have to deal with it and our culture is a little bit like that with crying you know there's this kind of thing that you know we tell little boys real men don't cry You know, so that, you know, they grow up with this idea that, you know, part of being masculine uh, means real men don't cry. Really? Well, what do you do with Jesus? I mean, Jesus, the Bible tells us he wept on more than one occasion. He stood by the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Shortest verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. I know some of you think I can't memorize scripture. We're going to do it right now. Okay? I want you to say this with me. John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty-five. 35. That's how you memorize scripture. Okay? So you can check that box off today. You know, you're, you're, you're good. You memorize scripture today. John eleven thirty-five. 35. Je- Jesus wept. Friends, the Son of God wept. He wept it, uh, over something like this. And it's interesting to me that the scriptures tell us that God notices when we weep. Now, when you get to the end of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 21, the Bible tells us that there's a coming day when Jesus will wipe out, he'll wipe out all the reasons for tears. They will, those will no longer exist. They'll be gone forever. But until then... God's word tells us that he counts every tear. In Psalm 56, verse 8, the Bible says, you, David's talking to God, you, God, keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. That word, that language for book is also found in the book of Revelation. It talks about books that are going to get open. And one of those books contains every tear you've ever shed, a record of it. Every sorrow. Why do you think that is? Why do you think God would record your tears? Because He has an eternal purpose for them. Something at some point, somewhere in eternity, God's going to pull out that book and He's going to show you your tears and He's going to show you where He was at work around you then. And you're going to celebrate in heaven. You're going to thank God for His grace and mercy. See, that's why God doesn't come along and try to stop you from crying. He's not not trying to shut them down. He's recording them. He's keeping them. And he's going to carry them into eternity. See, nothing's wrong with crying. God designed it to be therapeutic. You know, I've never heard of anybody going blind because of tears. But I have seen people who give themselves over to pursuing that become cut off from reality if you stay there too long. If you, if you exist in your, your tears too long, it can become a, a, a bit of a problem. And their tears need to be brought to truth. But here's how most of us try to bring truth to people who are being tearful. We like to bring a hammer. You know, we like to bring the hammer of truth. We put the hammer down. You need to see the truth. You, you can't bring the hammer of truth to people who are broken hearted you you got got to come with gentleness. And one of the most gentle ways to help people who are brokenhearted move into truth and out of being stuck and and, and in denial and back into reality is with some good questions. Just some gentle, good questions that help move people. This is something that I see about Jesus in this account from John chapter 20. When Jesus is present with the brokenhearted, inquiry becomes invaluable. It becomes a wonderful tool. Inquiry becomes invaluable. Look at verse 13. In, in John 20 verse 13, the angels are speaking to the woman and they said to Mary, why are you weeping? They asked her a question. And she said to them, they've taken away my word. I do not know where they have laid them. Now, does it seem strange to anybody other than me? That if a woman is in a cemetery and she's standing by an open grave and she's crying. How many of you would walk to her and say, what's your problem? Why are you crying? I mean, you wouldn't ask. You'd know why she was crying. You wouldn't even have to know her. But she's standing over an open grave. You'd know why she was crying. Seems like a little bit of a silly question. But in, in God's hands, it can become valuable. This, this line of questioning, it, it, can, it can have a, a purpose. And so they ask, woman, why are you weeping? And she tells them, because they've taken away my Lord. And in a moment, we're going to see Jesus ask her that very same question, but then add another question onto it. But before we get there, I want, I want us to stop and think about the angels for just a moment. Because they talk to Mary. They're, they're having this conversation with Mary. Now, if you go home later on today and you look at, um, Mark's account of this event and Luke's account of this event it doesn't name these men as angels it calls them men and apparently in this moment most of the time when angels show up they have to start out by saying what? fear not because it, it slays people it shocks people that angels show up in all their glory this time they were, it was a little more subtle they were, they were more like men dressed in white is the way that mark and and luke kind of described them because they didn't want to cause mary more trauma they didn't want to cause her to freak out anymore so here they are and they're in that tomb and there was this kind of shelf bench if you would where jesus body had been laid mary had seen that remember and one is sitting where Jesus' head had formerly been and one sitting where jesus's feet had formerly been and they're in this empty tomb now all throughout the angels show up all throughout the bible uh, uh, dr billy graham used to call them uh, god's secret agents that angels are god's secret agents i i love this but they they have ministry all throughout jesus's ministry they're ministering constantly through all throughout the old testament and then in the new testament and we see them ministering related to jesus he, they are at announcing his birth you know, it's kind of like the first reveal party. Angels show up. You're not, you, I know some of you think, I've, I've got the great, best idea for a reveal party. Nothing like Jesus, you know, angels show up and tell Mary, you know, in Luke chapter 1, you're going to have a child. It's going to be a virgin birth, and and you're going to have a child. You're going to name him Jesus. And then D- Joseph is planning to divorce Mary. They They haven't gotten married yet but they were engaged and in that day uh you had to end an engagement with a divorce and he was going to put her away quietly but God sends an angel to Joseph it's recorded in Matthew chapter 1 and he tells him she's going to give birth it's going to be the son of God you're going to name him Jesus and then when Jesus is born uh, in Bethlehem uh in, in Luke chapter 2 you know the story in Luke chapter 2 about the, because you've seen the Peanuts Christmas story. And Linus tells you, you know, the Christmas story that in those days, you know, out, out in the country, you know that. It was announced when Jesus was, was born in Luke chapter 2. Over and over again, we see angels active in the ministry and life of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is taken into the wilderness, uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. And it tells us that after he's been tempted by Satan in the wilderness, angels come and minister to him. And now here we are at the resurrection. And angels show up here. There's a passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorite verses that the Apostle Peter writes. It's First Peter chapter 1, verse 12. And it's talking about the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and how they prophesied. And it says this. It says, they were serving not themselves, but you when they were prophesying. It says, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then it says this. Things that in, into which angels long to look. Angels long to look at this. Angels are fascinated by our salvation. They are, they are like, God, you love those critters that much. They're just amazed at how much God loves us. God, you would do that for for them? They look at us and they don't get it. They don't get how, after all that God does, we still don't trust him. But they're fascinated with our salvation, that God still, still loves us, that he's long suffering. They can't figure it out, but they long to look at it. There's something else interesting about the angels in John 20 that I want to point out that I actually heard another pastor talk about. It's how the angels are situated. One is sitting on one end of where Jesus' body had lain, and one was sitting on the other. Now, and this is, this is something else that, that, that's interesting to note. The resurrection of Jesus is the only time you ever see angels sitting. You go through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, they're never sitting. They're always up, busy, active, they're doing stuff. But we get to the resurrection, and now they're sitting. Um, In Matthew uh, chapter 28, you you read there in verse 2 that an angel came down from heaven, rolled the stone back, and what did he do? He sat on it, waiting for somebody to show up, I guess, you know, maybe having some angel food cake. I, I don't know what he's doing. But he was just there, and he was was present, and he was just sitting. And now inside the tomb, there's these two angels that look more like men just sitting. This one pastor pointed out something. He, he, He took us back to Exodus chapter 25. And in Exodus chapter 25, God tells Moses something about two angels. And it's on top of the Ark of the Covenant that held The Ten Commandments, which was uh, really the covenant in law that God's people had with him. It was contained. The lid of that covenant crate, if you would, the Ark of the Covenant, had two angels molded. And they were facing one another. And their wings stuck out like this. And their wings, right where they almost touched, God said, that's the mercy seat. And that is where we will meet. It's the only place God said he would meet with his people, that he would meet with Moses, is at the mercy seat. Friends, in the New Testament, Jesus is the mercy seat. And God has said, the only way, the only way that anybody comes to me is through my son Jesus. And we see two angels seated on either end of where the body that had been sacrificed had been raised as the new mercy seat and we come to Jesus that way now and those angels are sitting there and Mary Mary walks into into this this new covenant of grace found because of what Jesus did on the cross the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made for you and may becoming the mercy seat on the cross let's go on to verse 14 we read this having said this she turned around. Now, Mary has said that they've, they've taken his body. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, he asked the same question the angels asked. Woman, why are you weeping? And then he asked, who are you seeking? Mary responds, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you had carried him away... Now, please, please don't miss the detail of this. She said, if you have carried him away... Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, I mean, think about this. Little little Mary, thinking that she's going to hoist up Jesus' dead body and haul him somewhere, dead weight. Now, let's let's just suppose for a moment that she could carry him. Let's just suppose for him. Where is she going to take him? What is she going to do with his body now? You know this in intuitively, that when something has happened to someone you love that is horrible, there's no such thing as impossible. You, you, can, you, you know you can do it. You can take anything on. You don't you dawdle don't over the details. You dive in. That's what Mary was doing. Mary's just saying, I'll deal with it. Where is he? I'll, I'll, I'll take care of this. I love the way that the Phillips translation, it's a paraphrase, paraphrases portions of 1 Corinthians 13. This applies to Mary, I think. It says, Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trusts, no fading of its hope. That was Mary. There was no end to what she would do for Jesus. Now, again, I want you to think for, for a minute about the two questions Jesus asked. Question number one Why are you crying? Question number two, who are you looking for? You know, that that first question the angels asked, Jesus asked again. And for those of you who have studied the life of Jesus, you know this. Jesus' classic method of teaching was asking questions. So often somebody would come to Jesus with a question, and what would Jesus do? He'd ask them a question about their question to get them thinking, to get them them moving. Jesus was always interested in moving somebody from where they were into a deeper relationship with God, and he knew that questions did that. See, for Jesus, his ministry, inquiring, was always an invaluable thing. So he asked Mary, why are you crying? Knowing that she's already said, because they've stolen his body. I think Jesus asked the same question a second time, to kind of begin planting into the heart of Mary. Mary, there may be a different explanation. Mary, Mary, come back. What about a resurrection, Mary? Is is it possible? Why are you crying? And then the second question is, who are you looking for? Mary, what, what kind of Savior are you looking for? Mary... What kind of Messiah did you think Jesus was going to be? Mary, what, 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 are, you, what are you imagining here? And it's, it's in these moments, you know, that we come to realize Mary was looking for a corpse. She wasn't, she wasn't looking for a risen Savior. She wasn't looking for a Messiah who had conquered death on her behalf. And we know that because she's staring at him. Eyeball to Eyeball. And she cannot see him. She, she just can't see him. Now, what why do you think that is? Why, why couldn't she recognize Jesus? I want us to talk about that in just a second. See, when a person is in going through this trial, she, in, in, in great brokenness, uh, d- depression, grief, suffering, a well-timed, gently thought-out question can go a long way to redirect somebody's struggle. You know, when somebody has lost a loved one, oftentimes the last thing they need for you to do is point out truth to them in that moment. Oftentimes that's the last thing they need in that moment. You need to help them get there. But what they most need right then is for you to be with them, to come alongside them in their suffering. And it's okay to ask some questions to help gently move them from if they're stuck somewhere. Questions like this. Something like, if somebody has lost someone, being able to ask them a question like, what do you most admire about your loved one that's passed? Or or, or maybe a question like, you know, what will you miss the most about them? Or maybe a question like, When you think about their life, what's the greatest thing they taught you about the way they live that you want to emulate? I mean, these are questions that are drawing you and them closer together around somebody that they loved so very, very much. You know, but so often we we want to run in there and try to hammer in the truth when what we need to do is realize that it's okay for this to be a process, that it's not going to happen overnight overnight. But what you can do is you can help them start evaluating their thinking. See, a well-timed, well-thought-out question that has a direction can help move someone along. Inquiring can be invaluable when somebody's brokenhearted. Third thing that I see here is when Jesus is present with the brokenhearted, understanding is unhurried. Jesus is not in this foot race to get Mary to hurry up and figure it out if he, if he had been he'd have come at this completely differently look at verse 16 Jesus said to her Mary and she turned and said to him in Aramaic Rabboni which means teacher now again just back up real quick let's rewind rethink through what's happened um, Mary comes to the tomb the second time she's still weeping she looks in there are two dudes there, there, and they ask me this question. Hey, lady, why are you, why are you crying? What are you so upset? And she tells them because somebody's stolen the, the body of this person that I love. And while she's talking to them, Jesus is outside. and she tur- Now, we don't know how she knows Jesus is outside. I don't, maybe one of the angels went, I don't know. I, I don't know how she knew. Maybe she heard footsteps. But we know that she turns around. And she speaks to Jesus. She takes her eyes out of the tomb, the empty tomb. And she turns around and, and Jesus asks her, why, why, why are you crying? And she thinks he's somebody that he's not. And she says, look, if you've taken his body away, tell me where it's at. I'll get it. And, and we don't know this exactly. We don't know what she did. But apparently she took her eyes off of Jesus for a moment. I don't know whether she looked back in the tomb at at the angels. I don't know whether she buries her face in her hands and begins weeping again. We don't know, but we know that she turns away from Jesus because the Bible tells us that she turns back to him when he speaks one word. One word. Mary. Now, I I think there was a tone in the way that he used the word Mary. I think it was a tone that was familiar to her a tone that was attractive to her, a tone that drew her in, but it was one word from the Son of God. It was her name. He spoke her, her, her name, Mary. You know that there are, we all have memory triggers. You know, certain smells can trigger memories. You know, I, I can smell um, a, a chocolate cake cooking and go back to my grandma's house. You know i can i can hear hearing is another way that we transport it back somewhere i can hear a, a couple of beats uh, of a song and be transported back to high school you know we, we can all, we, we have these triggers and this trigger for mary she heard the word from god and he he spoke her name and she knew who it was and and she turned around she turned around and she speaks to Jesus. Now, but before we look at that, I, I want you to think about what are some, you know, some people are, get a little frustrated with thinking, why didn't she recognize him? Well, I mean, I don't understand. Well, well, there are a couple reasons possibly. One of them is, remember the condition she was in? She'd bleary eyes, snot everywhere. I mean, it had not been a good day for her, Okay. She was having a rough time. She was distressed. She was despairing. The other, she was not expecting to see Jesus alive. Sometimes you can live with expectations that are so convincing that you can't see reality. Mary was Mary was in that state. She was, she was expecting to find this dead, bloated, horrible body of Jesus. Unrecognizable. That's what she was thinking. She had seen that late in the tomb. That's what she was. She wasn't expecting someone upright. And remember, at this point, this was Jesus' resurrected body. It wasn't going to look like his crucified body. Do you know your body's not going to look like the body you got right now? When I look in the mirror, praise Jesus for that. You know, these days. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that right now, these bodies that we have, they were sown in dishonor. But our eternal body, our resurrected body is going to be sown in honor. Mary didn't recognize Jesus because he was in his his resurrected body. But there may be another reason. There were others, other disciples of Jesus that he encountered after he had been raised from the dead that didn't recognize him. You go over to Luke chapter 24, and there are two disciples that after the events that had taken place that day in Jerusalem, they were walking back home to Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, this stranger comes up and starts walking with them and starts asking them questions about what's going on in their day. They could not, the Bible says this, they couldn't recognize him in Luke 24, 16. They were kept from recognizing him. He, they'd spent half a day with Jesus, and they didn't recognize him until he broke bread with them. Now, I think there's a reason for that for us. And it helps us relate to Mary a little bit. And it helps explain our condition sometimes because sometimes when we are in despair and discouraged and broken hearted, we don't see Jesus either. We know that in his word, in Hebrews 13, 5, he says, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. But we look around sometimes in our lives when we're in a, in, in a, in a hard spot and we think, Jesus, did you go on vacation? Where are you, Jesus? You're not here, Jesus. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. But our reality gets distorted. You you, you get to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, and I am with you always. Where are you, Jesus? I can't see you, Jesus. You must not be. Jesus said, I'm with you always. See, just like Mary, in our despair, and our distress, and our brokenheartedness, we don't believe that Jesus is present with us. But he is. He, he is there. It helps us relate to Mary a little bit more. So maybe what brought her out of where she was could also bring us back to where God wants us when we're stuck in despair or brokenheartedness or disillusionment. What was it that brought her back? It was one word from God. Just, just a word from God. That's all, it just took... A, a, a word from God, friends. That's how you and I are going to best see Jesus in our sorrow, to see Jesus in our despair, to see Jesus when our lives are, are experiencing brokenness. Romans chapter ten verse seventeen says, "So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ." That's how we'll get snapped out of our sorrow. We, we, we'll see Him. We'll hear His His word. You know, one of the things that Jesus said about himself, he he named himself, he would give himself certain names to help us understand his heart. And one of those he said, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And then in, in John chapter 10, verse 3, we hear Jesus teaching this to his disciples. He said, the sheep hear his voice of the shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You know, Mary recognized the voice of Jesus because she had been in the presence of Jesus long enough to know when it was his word, to know when it was Jesus who was speaking, who she recognized the word of God. So, how can you do that? How, how, how can we begin to recognize the voice of God? Same way Mary did, spending time with him. Spending personal time with God in his word through which he speaks. And in prayer, where we can begin to recognize His voice. That's how we do that. The same way Mary did. And you'll be able to, as you spend more time with the Lord in His Word and in prayer, you'll begin to recognize the difference between the voice of God and tapes that are playing in your head from your mama. Or your peers. Or that boss at work. Or false prophets. Or anyone like that. You'll be able to begin to discern different voices, and know that it's the voice of Jesus because you've spent time with him in his word. Now, just like Mary, her understanding was gradual. It's a process. The same is true for you and me. We're not going to recognize his voice all the time immediately. It It will be a process. But praise God, Jesus isn't in a hurry. He is unhurried for you to come to that place of understanding because he longs to be with you. He's going to wait there until you get to that place where you see, oh, this is Jesus. This is is the voice of the Lord. Last thing that I see here is when Jesus is present with the brokenhearted, purpose becomes power. Purpose becomes power in our lives when, when Jesus is present with the brokenhearted. See, Jesus... Jesus can give somebody like Mary, who was stuck in her sorrow and her grief, who really couldn't step out of the Jesus gives her a, a, a mission. And that mission moves her out of her despair and sorrow. This, this new purpose gives her power. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, why do you think Jesus said to Mary, Don't cling to me? I'm going to tell you what I think. I, I think when she heard his voice and recognized that he was Jesus, I think she rushed him. I think she rushed him and threw her arms around him and, and would not let go. I think she might have been cut off his oxygen supply. You know, she thought she could carry his body. That might have been a strong girl. I don't know. But she wrapped her arms. I think she wrapped her arms around him and wasn't going to let go. She wasn't going to leave that place. And Jesus said, Mary, you got you to let me go. You can't, you can't keep, keep clean. I mean, think about what would happen if you had somehow gotten a report that somebody that you loved was in a traffic accident and was killed. And you were at the emergency room and they come walking around the corner. What are you gonna do? You gonna fist bump them? What are you gonna do? There's gonna be a throwdown right there. You know, in front of God and everybody. You're you're gonna rob them, you're not gonna let them go. That was Mary. She wasn't about to let Jesus go, but Jesus said, Mary, I got something even better than hanging on to me. I got something better for you, Mary. I got a mission for you, girl. I got something valuable for you to do. I got something that was going to give your life real meaning. See, Jesus, Jesus was continually empowering her and elevating her and moving her beyond where she was stuck. He was bringing new life to her, and this is what he said: "I got a message I want you to deliver. I got a message I want you to deliver. I could do it myself." but I want you to enjoy this, Mary. I want, you to, I want, I want this mission to move you. I, w- I want to empower you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to my brothers. Jesus had never called the disciples brothers before that moment. He called them friends. He called them servants. He called them followers, disciples, but he had never called them brothers. Why would Jesus suddenly start calling them brothers now? Because of the cross because of what he did on the cross when jesus died on the cross he made a new relationship with god possible it the possibility of that kind of relationship where they could be his brothers where those disciples could be called the children of god that had not existed until jesus died on that cross and paid the penalty for their sins and yours and mine So that they could be adopted into the family of God and become known as brothers and sisters to Jesus, children of God. And so Jesus, for the very first time, sends Mary and says, I want you to. I I think Jesus was excited to get to say that word personally. I think Jesus couldn't wait to say, Go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers, Mary. And so she did, She, she went and told them of the joy that she experienced see the bible tells us in hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 that jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters now i know i know what goes through your head sometimes about you because it goes through my head sometimes the liar comes along and he tells me there ain't no way in the world jesus would get excited about calling you brother and that's a lie I don't care what you've done, who you've done it with, how long you did it. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you have been adopted into God's family. And Jesus said, I will never be ashamed to call you mine. You, you should be happy about that. You should, I mean, you, we should just celebrate that reality that Jesus never looks at us with shame in his mind. He's just filled with joy. Go and tell my brothers that I am going to my father and your father. I'm going to my God and your God. Friends, there's a lesson here for us. When we're stuck in brokenness or when somebody we love is stuck in in brokenness, when we're we're stuck in our sorrow and our grief or discouragement, sometimes inviting Somebody into something that will add value to their lives can be transformative. Something that is beyond this life, a message of hope, can bring somebody out of that, that stuck place, can move them forward to dig them out. You know, meaningful purpose can unlock power to re-enter life. The psalmist tells us in Psalms 30 that weep, weeping, it'll last for a night. But there's joy. There can be joy. Joy comes in the morning. Joy comes through uh, the message of good news. That anybody can become a, a child of God because of what Jesus did. We can be known as His sons and daughters. He'll give us purpose. He'll give us power in our lives to break out of our circumstances. He'll give us power to, to walk in hope to be, for our hope to be restored. And friends, there is nothing... There is nothing to dig you out of your own stuff like sharing Jesus with somebody and seeing them respond to him. It, not just, it, it doesn't just change them, it changes you. It, 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 it elevates your hope. It gives you a new power for living in the mess that you're stuck in. And so for the sake of the Lord and for that person... And your own sake. If you're stuck, maybe what you need to do is take a moment to think about the goodness of Jesus in your life and tell somebody else. Just just bring that message of hope to somebody else because it can bring abundant life to you. Let's pray. Jesus, I just I'm so grateful that you took this journey with Mary took her through that process moved her gently from the despair she was in you didn't grow frustrated with her you didn't hurry her along you helped move her there because you're gracious and you're merciful and you're kind and you're gentle I thank you that that's who you are for us And I pray that you will transform us to be that for others. Maybe you're here today and you have never in your life trusted in that Jesus who was raised from the dead. You never trusted that what he did on the cross paid for your sin. You never knew before today that Without Jesus, you're an enemy of God. Without coming to Jesus and finding mercy from God through Jesus, that you're destined for hell and eternity apart from God. But because of Jesus, you can come to God. You can become a child of God. Not an enemy of God. Not just a creation of God, but his child. Adopted into his family. Someone that Jesus will not be ashamed to call my brother or my sister. Ever. Ever. All you've got to do, the Bible says, is put your trust in Jesus. Believe that your sin separated you from God and that what Jesus did on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. And if you will turn from thinking you could do it yourself, repent and put your trust in him and give Christ your life and follow him, the Bible says you'll be saved, which means you'll become part of the family of God. And you can do that right where you're seated right now. Just say, Jesus, I'm coming trusting you. most of us in this room, at some point in our lives have made that decision already. And we, we just need to be reminded that even when we're in places of sorrow and suffering and despair, that Jesus is there. And he's moving gently with us, moving us along in an unhurried way, patiently walking and waiting with us, asking us to inquire, to seek, to knock, and we'll find Him. And when we find Him, Jesus promises that He'll restore us to joy. And He'll bring us to that place where we'll want to tell others, we'll want to run tell others about what He's done for us. And that should excite your souls to know that you can move from despair to hope with Jesus. And that you could walk with somebody From despair to hope with Jesus. So Jesus, we come. We come to thank you. We come to celebrate you. We come to worship you now. We come to just see, say hallelujah to your name, oh Jesus. Because of what you've done for us and what you continue to do in us. We just praise you now. It's in your name we pray.